And that passage of scripture is Psalm 51. We're going to read the, the first several verses of this psalm. Remember, there's a background to it. David, the king, the anointed of God, the one chosen of God, the one of whom God said, I'm looking for a man after my own heart, committed egregious sins. He had he, he committed adultery with the wife of Uriah. Her name was Bathsheba. Then to cover up what he had done, he had Uriah killed. It was a tragic, awful day in Israel's history. Anywhere else in the world of that day, that would have never been thought about. It would be assumed that kings act in these ways. Even today around the world, ordinary citizens in countries around the world, in, in authoritarian countries, in dictatorships, under the rule of despots, in communism, even today, people simply disappear and are never heard from again. But that is not the way it is with the God of the universe. And that was not the way it was with the people of Israel. Remember, the people of Israel were, were not a race. They were not a geography. They were not a country. They were a people set apart for God. There were no Hebrews until God called a man by the name of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And that nation was to serve God. That nation was to please God. And so when David did what he did, God called a prophet by the name of Nathan, and he said, go to David and tell him, you are the man who has rebelled against God. To Nathan's credit, to David's credit, David repented of his sin, and he wrote these words, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Think along these lines. It's always on my mind. I can't get rid of it. I can't get it out of my mind. My sin is always before me. Against you, O oh God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or let your Holy Spirit be taken from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. We all love a feel-good story. And this afternoon, there's going to be a feel-good story. When four teams play for who's going to go to the Super Bowl, and a man who has been nicknamed Mr. Irrelevant is going to lead the San Francisco 49ers into their game with the Eagles. The, the name Mr. Irrelevant was given by somewhere a long time ago to designate the very last football player drafted in the NFL. And last year... Number 262 was a man by the name of Brock Purdy, who today is going to start for the 49ers as quarterback. Now, here's the significance. That's never happened before. In the past, no Mr. Irrelevant has even thrown a pass in a football game. But Brock Purdy is kind of thrown into this thing because somewhere early in the season, the number two quarterback for the 49ers was injured. And then seven games ago, Jimmy Garofalo was injured and out for the season. And the 49ers didn't want to play Brock Purdy. They just didn't have any choice. And for the next seven games, a rookie who wasn't supposed to play, who no one ever imagined was going to play, has led the 49ers to win every game. It's a feel-good story. And we all love those stories. But in two weeks, you and I will be on to something else, and it won't matter. What you and I want is something that lasts. What you and I want is a heart filled with joy. What you and I want is the peace of God that passes all understanding. And the question for all of us has to be, how do you get that? How do I go through the day in joy? How do I wake up in the morning in peace? How do I go to bed at night in comfort? How do I know that I can trust God and know 
that he's going to be there for me and I can experience the goodness of God. Psalm 51 answers the question because David had none of those things. He didn't have a heart of joy. He didn't have comfort at night. He didn't have peace in the morning. His sin, he says, was always before him meaning that he couldn't get it off his mind, meaning that he didn't have any forgiveness, meaning that he didn't know how to go on with life. How do you live with a heart of joy? How do you get beyond the things of the world, of what our body looks like, of how many likes we have? of who is chosen, how do we get beyond that so that we have a heart of joy and meaning and significance and we experience love and peace? How does that happen? Four things in this passage of Scripture. The the first one is this. It is when we understand who God is, when we know God's nature. It's amazing because that's what David starts with. He starts about the nature of God. He tells us who God is. And so he says in these verses, have mercy on me, O God, according to who you are, according to your faithful love, your unfailing love. And then he says, blot out my transgressions according to your great compassion. David had a hope for a a joy-filled heart, for peace, for comfort, based on who God is. That God is a God of love and a God of compassion. Well, what does the Bible say about God? By the way, I, when I started studying the Psalms seriously years ago, I really didn't think much about the Psalms. I, I just assumed that they were laments. They were expressing emotions, bad emotions and good emotions. I just assumed they were songs that were sung in the temple. But the more I studied the Psalms, the more I realized these Psalms Tell us who God is. These psalms tell us what God does. These psalms tell us how to come into the presence of God and how to know him. And because David knew those things, he could go to God in confession and repentance and know that God was going to hear him and to know that God cared about him. We can have a a heart of joy when we understand the nature of God. And so what do the Psalms tell us? They tell us that God is holy. For God to be holy means that he is perfect moral purity. The New Testament puts it this way. In he is light and in him is no darkness. Now the picture is... The the picture of light is goodness, and the picture of night is evil. God is light, and there is no darkness in him. The New Testament says there's not even a shadow. There's not even a hint of darkness. He is perfect moral purity. 
the prophet Isaiah had, had a phrase that is used about God that had never been used before. He called God the Holy One of Israel. So God is holy and he is righteous. All his ways are right. He can be trusted. He does have us in the palm of his hands. He is pointing out the way. He does have a plan for our lives. He does have a plan for our eternity. And though we may not understand, and in fact, the truth is, we almost never understand because we are finite and we're sinful and we're limited by our minds. We're limited by our experiences. And so we don't understand. But God has always been and always will be. And God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is all loving and he cares for us, and he plans for us, and he knew what he wanted to do with us before the foundation of the world. God is holy, and he is righteous. He is forgiving. David makes that so clear. He is crying out for forgiveness, and he uses a number of different ways to describe it, and he, and he uses word pictures. One of them was to blot out our sin. In other words, they would use a blotter to, to cover over a writing. One time he says to, to scrub me, and the whole idea is of, of a person using a scrub board to wash clothes like they would have done in that day. And David said, scrub me of my sin. He knew that forgiveness was possible. In a later psalm, the psalm says that God removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And Jeremiah said, the prophet talked about God forgiving and remembering our sin no more. God forgives. He is merciful. The word mercy is a, a beautiful word. It comes from the word for the womb of a woman. And so here's the picture. That God obviously loves us greater. But in your in, in my mind, we see the love of a mother for her children. And we see her mercy for her children. And God is merciful. Remember, merciful to be mercy means you don't get what you deserve. You deserve judgment, but you get mercy. God is merciful. God is kind and He is loving. I, I love the, the last of Ephesians chapter 4. Put away all wrath and malice and envy and rage and anger. And then he tells us to be kind and compassionate. I love this phrase, tenderhearted. Tenderhearted toward other people. 
tenderhearted toward people's faults and failures, tenderhearted toward people who get it wrong. Be kind, be compassionate, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. And he gives us the example as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. God is kind and he is loving. I I love Psalm 63, also written by David. Here's what he says. For you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. I hunger for you. Because David knew that that the renewing of his life could only come because of a God who is great and a God who is good and a God who is kind and a God who is merciful and a God who is forgiving and a God who is loving. When, When Jesus came, he revealed the Father to us in even a greater way. And the Apostle John, who was the closest, we think, to Jesus of all the disciples, said, God is love. We can have a heart that is joyful when we know the God who is loving and forgiving. We can have a joyful heart when you live in right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. That's the part David knew. My my sin is ever before me. He doesn't say this. I can't imagine, but that he doesn't mean that he is thinking about the righteous man, Uriah. Uriah was in David's army. Uriah was a hero. Uriah was a mighty man of valor who was willing to do everything for David. You go back and read in 2 Samuel, you read about Uriah. He would have been one of the people put on a pedestal. And David had him killed. He gave his commander an order. I want you to fight against this fortified city. You and I kind of think that everybody went up against the wall of the city and they were fighting there. No, if you were against the wall of the city, the the Jews, the Hebrews said this, even the smallest woman could pick up a rock and just drop it over the wall and kill the warrior. And so David made an awful military decision, put the army up against the wall, and then withdraw everybody but Uriah. My guess is that that picture was in David's mind and he could never get it out of his mind. He said, my sin is ever before me. He says, I was conceived in iniquity which I think is a way of saying I've always been a sinner. Kind of like the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We are all sinful people. We were we have a nature toward sin because of Adam and Eve and we've made choices about sin. That is what David is saying, I am a sinful 
man, oh God, and I want to be in right relationship with you. And, And in order for that to happen, repentance has to occur. Repentance is turning your back on sin. The word repentance is often left out of churches, and may it not be so, that it is left out of of our worship and our teaching and our Bible study. What does it mean to repent? There is a word for repentance in the Old Testament, and it simply means to turn around. You're going in one direction, and you turn around and go in another. And you can see how it means that, because you are moving toward sin. But when you repent, you turn your back on your sin. God, I don't want this. I don't want this in my life. This is not what I want to be. I turn away from my sin. In the New Testament, the concept is exactly the same. But in the New Testament, repentance is to change your mind. Think of it in this way. I want to turn my back to sin so I change my mind about my actions. And I turn and I move away from my sin and I move toward God. That's repentance. And repentance is essential. It's essential to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came preaching. Remember what he preached? We're told that John the Baptist and Jesus preached the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, unless you repent, they were given an example of people who had died. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise Perish repentance is essential to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but it's also essential to but for people who've been believers for a long time. Because we never get away from our sinful nature. We never get away from that old person that always tends toward sin and rebellion and repentance is essential to have a right relationship with God because, in effect, you can never get away from your sin until you turn your back on your sin because it will always be before you. You know what it's like to have wrong relationships. You you have this problem with a friend or a former friend, and every time you see them, you just want to move in a different direction because you can't get away from them. And that's what happens with God. And so the time you need God the most, we turn away from him. When, when I was called to preach, they ordained me as a, as a minister of the gospel. And, and they gave me a Bible, not this Bible, but they gave me a Bible. And my pastor wrote on the inside cover the words of an evangelist by the name of Dwight L. Moody. And this is what he said. He said, Waylon, this book will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this book. 
And that's exactly what happens. At the time you need to read Scripture the most, your sin turns you away from the Scripture. At a time in which you need to be with the people of God more than ever before, your sin keeps you away from the people of God. At the time you need to cry out to God in prayer, your sin keeps that from happening. It is imperative that we repent and we turn unto God because we can't have right relationships without it. I love Proverbs 28.1 because it is so true to life. Think about your life. I think about my life. The wicked man runs when no one chases. In other words, there's nobody trying to catch him. But his sin is so much a part of his life. His sin is so apparent to him that he's always afraid. He's always looking over his shoulder because his relationship with God and his relationship with other people is not right. You can't have a heart of joy with wrong relationships with God and other people. But when we have right relationships, then we can have that heart of joy and peace and comfort, and hope. How is it that you have right relationships with God and you have a heart of joy? It's when you walk in God's ways. David says, God, create in me a clean heart. Give me a pure heart. Remove my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions from me. By the way, there are three major words for sin in the old, te- in the Hebrew language, and David uses all three of them here. He uses the word sin, which means to miss the mark. He uses the word iniquity, that means to take that which is good and twist it. Think about the human ego. You twist the human ego and you have pride. He takes the word for transgression. And what does it mean? It means to shake your fist in the face of God. And David said, these are my sins. But God, if you will forgive me, I will teach transgressors your ways. And I will tell of your goodness. When you walk in God's ways, you can have a heart of joy and comfort and peace. And how does that happen? It's when you pour out your heart and your soul to God. One of the best definitions of prayer I've ever read was Hannah, the mother of Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She was praying in desperation, kind of like we sang a few minutes ago. She was praying in desperation and asking God to give her a child, and God answered her prayer. And and Eli, the priest, thought that she was drunken. And she said, no, my Lord, but I am pouring out my soul before the Lord. You can have a heart of joy and peace and comfort when you pour out your heart before God. Remember what Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah chapter 29? He said, 
God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And remember, we've learned that the heart, one definition is the entirety of the person, the whole inner being, the whole person before God. When we pour out our heart before the Lord, then we can have a heart of joy and peace and comfort. One morning this week, I, I woke up and I had the words of a, of a song I hadn't sung in a long time. I, I kind of, I'm not much with music, but I'm, but I'm a really good hummer. So I was humming this, and then the words came to me. When we walk, it's a poem, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of his word. What a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey. And out of that song, and out of the teaching of Joshua, I remembered that God wants faithful and total obedience to him. And the refrain of that song says, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. A couple of weeks ago, if you were here, I charged you. I said, let's make this our goal. And I ask you to pray specifically, individually to pray and say to God, God, I want a heart that pleases you. And I want my life to please you. I want you to add to that prayer today. Would you say to God, God, I want to trust and obey. And sometimes when it's such a difficult thing to do, I will say, God, I'm not very good at trusting and obeying, but I am willing for you to make me willing to trust and obey. And I want to ask you to pray in that way. God, I want to trust you, and I want to obey you, and I want you to help me to do that. So let's stand together, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray and make that decision for the Lord. And after I finish my prayer, it'll be time for you to come and open your heart to God and trust Him. It'll be time for you to pray with a pastor and say, I do want to trust and obey, and I want my heart to be pleasing unto God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we can pray. And God, we thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness. God, we thank you for repentance. It's hard to do, but it is sweet to experience when we turn away from our sin. And God, thank you that you give us that way to, to be right with you. And thank you that you forgive us and you make us new people.
God, there are people praying now that they might trust and obey. Would you bless them? And would you do great things in their lives? God, would you give them a heart of joy and a life of significance? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.